Amen. Let's continue our worship this morning as we bow our heads and pray to this glorious God who has revealed himself through Christ, who's provided salvation for us in Christ, and who's going to establish his son, the Christ, as king overall. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've sung this morning of great truths, of the marvelous things that you have done, the things you've done for us through your son, Jesus. And as we approach the Christmas season and get ready to celebrate his birth, I pray that over these weeks, as we open your word, as we sing these seasonal type songs, I ask that you would uh, help us to see past the sentimentality of Christmas, that we would see past the tradition and the good things like family and gifts and shared meals. And I pray that you would help us to see the glory and the wonder that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And that you sent your son Jesus, who is the fullness of God, not just to set an example for us, not just to show in sort of an abstract sense, your love for sinners. You sent him to fulfill the law and to die on the cross and to rise again, to bring about your saving purposes for the nations, to make it possible for sinners like us to be forgiven and reconciled to you so that we can have eternal life. Lord, this is the light that has come. It is the truth of Christ and his gospel. So I pray that you would receive all the glory today. And as we look into the Old Testament and consider all that you did in history to bring about salvation, I pray that all these things would point us forward to Christ and that we would see him and love him more. Lord, we recognize that in this room this morning, we all come with different uh, burdens on our hearts. We come with various types of baggage, different things that are distractions. Some are suffering physically. Some are facing financial pressure. Others are facing the pain of broken relationships and, and strained relationships. Um, some are facing uncertainties for the future. Lord, we confess that our great need this morning is to see you, to behold you, to know you as you really are. So Lord, give us a focus this morning and the ability spiritually to comprehend the truth of your word. We pray for your ministry in our hearts now through your spirit and for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as you noticed, uh, we're singing Christmas songs, and I love that time of year. I love uh, singing about and thinking about uh, what God did in sending his son Jesus. And over the next several weeks, we will be turning our attention in the, the preaching portion of our worship service to the incarnation. Uh, but today, we're actually going to be finishing our series through the book of Exodus. You can open up to Exodus chapter 36. It's been about 50 plus sermons. We started studying Exodus um, for many of you, what would have been right as you first started attending our church back in July of 2020. At that point, we didn't even own a church building. We had no thought of owning a church building. We were renting the Doubletree Hotel on a week-to-week -week basis just coming out of COVID. And we started our study through Exodus then. And today we're going to cover the last five chapters, chapters 36 through 40 of the book of Exodus. And these final five chapters really constitute a third major scene in the book of Exodus. You can break Exodus really into three scenes or three movements Chapters 1 through 19, we find that God is bringing a people out of Egypt. The first 19 chapters tell us about the calling of Moses, the plagues, and the crossing of the Red Sea. It's this marvelous display of God's glorious power in rescuing his people. That's the first major scene in Exodus. The second main scene in Exodus, where we've been for the last several months, is chapters 20 through 35. And that takes place at Mount Sinai. In this second scene, God takes these people that he's rescued, these people he's redeemed, and he brings them into a covenant with himself. He establishes this relationship with him. That's where we see the scene at Mount Sinai where God gives his people the law, and they swear their loyalty to him, and he makes these promises to them on what he's going to do, and we find this covenant solidified with Israel. That's the second scene. And then the third scene, what we'll be touching on today, is the construction, the consecration, and then the filling of the tabernacle with the glory of God. That's where God comes to dwell with his people. And this is the consummation of the whole book, really the climax of where the whole story has been driving. And if we combine all these three scenes together, you can really summarize the flow of the whole book of Exodus this way. 
that God rescues a people by his glorious power, that he brings them into a covenant by his glorious grace so that they might receive his glorious presence. That's really a summary of the flow of the whole book of Exodus. God rescues a people by his glorious power that he might enter into a covenant with them by his glorious grace that they might receive his glorious presence. That's what the whole story is about. So everything is leading to these final chapters in this book. So I want this morning to look at this climactic scene and to consider what it is that we learn from it, but also to sort of zoom out and see how this scene fits into the larger story of Exodus as a whole, and even zoom out wider than that and consider how it fits into the larger story of Scripture, what it tells us about this God we worship and what it is that he is doing in the world. So Exodus chapter 36 through 40, we won't have time to read every verse this morning, but we will sort of summarize some larger sections and touch on the key verses. So first I want to sort of give an overview of this section, since it's so large. And just to remind you, back in chapter 25, God had announced his gracious purpose to Israel. Back in chapter 25, verse 8, God had said to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God had said, I want them to make me a sanctuary, a tent, a tabernacle, so that I may dwell in their midst. This is a new development, and it was a great and gracious blessing that was a feature of the covenant God was making with them. That God intended to dwell with his people, not just on the top of Mount Sinai, Not just outside the camp, but with them, among them, in their midst. Now, as we saw over the last several weeks, the people went astray in worshiping the golden calf. They violated God's law. They turned away from him. But God forgave their rebellion. He restored them and renewed his covenant with them. And here we find out in these last chapters that despite their failure, the plans for the tabernacle are back on. And construction now needs to be carried out. And there's really four steps uh, for this to happen. The first step is that if this, if this tabernacle is going to be completed, materials have to be given. We talked about this last week. The people eagerly gave of their personal possessions, and they furnished all the materials for the tabernacle and more. We pointed out last week in Exodus 36, verses 6 through 7, that Moses has to tell them to stop. They've actually brought too much They have all that they need and more. And the total amount that is given is really staggering. You can look in chapter 38, verses 24 through 29 and see this, the the total that was given for the construction of the tabernacle. In chapter 38, verse 24, it says, All the gold that was used for the work in all the construction of the sanctuary, the gold from the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, Those aren't measurements we use today, but to convert that into pounds, this would be over one ton of gold. It'd be about 2,200 pounds of gold. That's roughly $57 million worth of gold in today's valuation of currency. The silver, likewise, was a large amount. Verse 25, the silver from those of the congregation who were recorded was a hundred talents and 1,775 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. This is largely the result of a census that was taken, which we see back in chapter 30, and it amounts to about 7,500 pounds, two and a half million dollars worth of silver. The bronze we find in verse 29. The bronze that was offered was 70 talents, 2,400 shekels. This is more than 5,300 pounds of bronze. So in addition to all these precious metals, they also gave, as we saw last week, wood, fabric, leather, special yarns and dyes, all uh, the the oils and the, the spices, all the material that was needed for the tabernacle, for the furnishings of the tabernacle, for the special tools that would be used for worship, for the clothing of the priests, all of it. It was all provided. So the first step, material has to be given, and that is clearly done. But they need more than just material, don't they? They need someone to do the work. So the second step was that workers had to be called. And again, we saw last week that God specially equipped two men, Bezalel and Aholiab. And they were master craftsmen who would do the most crucial parts and oversee the rest. At the end of chapter 35, 
Um, verse 30, Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So these two guys are specially gifted by God and they're tasked with training and overseeing all those who would do the work. So they have the material, they have the workers, and the bulk of our section today shows the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings. It was time now to actually make it, to, to, to put it together, to, to form and construct all the different components. Now, God had given special instructions to Moses on the tabernacle and all its furnishings. Chapters 25 through 30 of Exodus record all that God had told Moses. Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, 40 nights. And among other things, God had revealed to Moses exactly his pattern, his design for the tabernacle. And so in the next four chapters, 36, 37, 38, 39, it systematically walks through every detail of what they did, that they faithfully carried out all that God had commanded in those earlier chapters. And there's really a beautiful rhythm in these chapters that you can only appreciate if you read it. I know many of you will read ahead of time the text that we'll be preaching on. And if you read it this week, you probably noticed that there's about 100 instances of the word made, that verb, to make, that they made everything that God had said. They took the gold, the silver, the bronze, the wood, special fabrics. They made the tabernacle. They made the ark. They made the altar. They made the clothing for the priests. Over and over and over again, we find these men doing what God had instructed them to do. All that God had told Moses, all that Moses had seen on the mountain is now becoming a physical reality. With every pass of the needle, with every engraving of the, the chisel, with every beat of the hammer flattening out the gold that they would coat things in, with, with every, every push of, of, of the tool to scrape the wood and form it and shape it, they were making what God had instructed them to make. And so as you read this, the anticipation seems to build and build until eventually we find that the project is complete. Look over at chapter 39 in verse 32. After going through this repetition of they made everything over and over and over again, it says in verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram's skins and goat skins and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light the golden altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar, its grating of bronze, its poles, all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, its cords and its pegs, and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. So they complete the project 
And Moses himself inspects everything that had been made. They come and they show it to Moses. You see, Moses had seen the pattern on the mountain. He'd had this vision that God gave him that showed exactly what he wanted the tabernacle to look like. And so Moses sees that everything had been done perfectly. He knows what God is expecting, and he sees it, and he calls it good. He blesses them. It's hard for us not to hear the echo of the creation account in, that, that, we, that we read back in Genesis, to hear the echo of that right here. Back in Genesis 1, we see that God spent six days in his work of creation. And then when it was done, he saw all that he had made and declared that it was very good. Here we find Moses seeing all that they have made over the course of six months, if we do the math here. And we see that Moses blessed them. And I think that this correspondence to the early chapters of Genesis is more than just a nifty coincidence. It's symbolic of the fact that God in the tabernacle, in in bringing these people together and intending to dwell among them, God is recreating what was lost in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, mankind forfeited the blessing of God's presence. They were driven out of the garden. Two angelic creatures were stationed at the entrance to guard the way. No one could come back in. Sin had separated man from God. But now, through this gracious covenant, God is restoring what had been lost. He's making a way for his presence to dwell with his people. As they are constructing the materials for this tabernacle, God looks on it. He is pleased, and Moses echoes this by declaring it good and blessing the people. So everything has been constructed. But now we come to the third step. So the materials are gathered. uh, The workers are called. All the parts are, are created But now the tabernacle has to be erected. And that's what we find in chapter 40, verses 1 through 33. After inspecting everything that was made, Moses receives instructions from God. Verse 1 of chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And then he goes on to continue all the way through verse 15 and describes exactly how Moses is to set up the tabernacle. And it's interesting, they're supposed to begin this work on the first day of the new year. Again, this is significant. It marks a new beginning, a new creation. There's a fresh start here, and it's all going to start with worship. And God gives Moses these instructions, verses 1 through 15. Moses' job is to see that everything is done correctly, and he's supposed to personally be involved in setting up the tabernacle. And Moses obeys in verses 16 through 33. Verse 16 says, This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. It's interesting, we sort of see bookends here. In verse 16 it says that Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And then the next several verses lay out everything that Moses did. Then you get to verse 33. It says, He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. He did all that God commanded and he finished the work. Moses obeys the command of God and setting everything up. And in between these two bookends, seven different times we read this refrain, as the Lord had commanded Moses. It's like the chorus to a song. It says what he did, and it says he did it as the Lord had commanded him. And the number seven here signifies completion. It signifies perfection, that Moses did everything that God had said, and he did exactly as God had said. When Moses gets done, the work is finished. The tabernacle is now complete. It's set up, and it's ready for use. It's no more just the raw parts and materials. It's built. But ultimately, this tabernacle is only worth the material it's made of unless God shows up. The tabernacle was meant to be a dwelling place for God, not just a fancy piece of art, not just the nicest tent on the block. And so God needs to enter in. That's exactly what he does. And I really want to focus on these last few verses in chapter 40 because this is the climax, not just to this section, this scene, but really to the entire book 
of Exodus. Look with me in verse 34 of chapter 40. It says, then, after the materials are given, after the workers are called, after the workers do their part, after Moses sets it up, after the work is completed, it says, then, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It's no surprise to us, or it should be no surprise, that the climactic scene in this whole book, in this whole story in Exodus, is a manifestation of the glory of God. The glory of God is really a theme that's threaded throughout this entire book. It's the glorious God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush back in chapter 3. The God who told Moses his name, I am who I am. And that bush burned but was not consumed. It was a manifestation in a small way of the glory of God. It's the glorious God who confronted and defeated Pharaoh challenging Pharaoh, challenging all the gods of Egypt, sending plagues, opening up the Red Sea and crushing the armies of Egypt so that the people sang on the distant shore, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, awesome in power, majestic in your holiness. That's the God of glory. It was a glorious God who entered into covenant with his people who displayed his glory on the top of Mount Sinai as the whole mountain trembled, as it was wrapped in smoke, as the blazing glory of God was manifested there at the top of the mountain. And now, as we saw a few weeks ago, it's the glorious God who renews his covenant with his people, who announces his name to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This God who passed before Moses so that when Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone. That's the glory of God. And now we have this glory of God filling the tabernacle. Every verse in this last section mentions the cloud, the glory of God. The cloud was the visible manifestation of God's presence It would have been awe-inspiring for these people to know that the Lord, the God of the covenant, the God who defeated Egypt, the God who fed them in the wilderness, the God who gave them the law at Sinai, this God was now among them. That is a fearful reality, but also one that they desperately needed. Remember, Moses said, if you don't go with us, please don't send us up from here. Please don't withdraw from us. We need you. They'd seen this cloud before. In chapter 12, this cloud had guided them through the wilderness. In chapters 19 and 24, we see this cloud settled on the top of Mount Sinai. This same cloud had appeared in the temporary tent of meeting in chapter 33 and 34. But now there's something new that's happening. Something special. God, the manifestation of his glory, was coming home. And he was establishing himself in their midst. This meant that the tabernacle, this special sanctuary they had constructed, this would now be the place where God dwelt. This would now be the place from which God would speak to them. No longer would God be removed and separated at the top of the mountain. And they would would have to keep away from even touching the foot of the mountain. No longer would God be far outside the camp in the tent of meeting. Now he would be within the camp. Now God was among them in their midst. And there's an amazing note here. It says in verse 35 that Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And you might wonder why Moses includes this note because Moses is writing this. It almost makes you wonder. It seems like he tried to go in. It seems like he tried to enter because it says he could not. He couldn't enter. Why is that? 
We know that Moses has entered into the presence of God on several other occasions. Moses is the one at the burning bush. Moses is the one who goes up on top of Mount Sinai. Moses is the one who's gone into the tent of meeting outside the camp. But now we need to understand something has changed. Moses may be the builder of this house, but now the owner is present. Maybe some of you guys have, have built a house before. Maybe you did it yourself, but maybe you hired a, a home builder. Well, that builder has the keys while he's building the house, but on the day you move in, he doesn't get the keys anymore. He can no longer come in anytime he pleases to do work on the house. There's been a transferal of ownership, and though Moses has constructed and put together this tabernacle, now God is home. And Moses can only come in when he's invited, only under special circumstances. And when it tells us here that Moses isn't able to enter into the house, it makes you wonder, what will it take for, for a human being, for a sinful man, to be able to go into this tabernacle? Well, that's a good question, and that's what the whole book of Leviticus is about. As you read Leviticus, you see all the patterns of sacrifice, atonement, cleansing, so that the high priest could enter into the most holy place in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle. So I encourage you, go read Leviticus, and you'll learn more about all of that. But lest we think that God is, <clears throat> is somehow being resistant or standoffish because Moses can't come in, notice the reassuring good news in verses 36 through 38. It tells us that throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is really important. God was indeed with them, and this was not a temporary thing. He stayed with them. And whenever he did depart, it wasn't because he was abandoning them as a people, it's because he was leading them to a new place a new place for them to encamp. God's presence would be an ongoing reality with his people. As their sovereign Lord, he told them where to go, and he told them when to go. But this is a feature of his covenant grace. And, and he's not driving them into the ground like a taskmaster. He's guiding them home. Their journey is ultimately taking them to the promised land. And all of Israel is a daily witness to his presence. It says that, he did this in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. It's not just Moses who sees that God is with them. This is something that everyone is able to daily see with their own eyes. This is the climax of this entire story that the glory of God fills the tabernacle and he is now dwelling among his people. So what are the truths that we draw out of this story? What observations can we make about this God, how he works in history, and how he works in our lives? Well, I want to share with you this morning three observations on this. Number one, God's covenant purpose is fulfilled to a repentant people. God's covenant purpose of dwelling with them, being among them, blessing them with all the, the blessings of his covenant, it's fulfilled to a repentant people. Consider that this nation had fallen, and they fell hard. They fell hard. They made a calf out of gold, and they worshiped it in direct violation of the Ten Commandments God had given them, direct violation of the command to worship God alone, to worship him exclusively. They had sworn to obey, and then all it took was 40 days, 40 nights of not knowing where Moses was, and they turned away from God. But these chapters show us a people that have truly turned from their sin. That's what repentance is. Maybe that's a new word for you. It's a word we use in the church a lot. It's one of those Christian you know, buzzwords, repentance, repent. What does that mean? It very simply means to turn. And this is very clearly a people that have turned from their sin with the golden calf. Repentance is a matter of the heart, but it produces fruit. Real repentance produces change. It affects how we behave. And this is very clearly a changed people. Formerly, they had taken off their earrings and melted them down and used it to make a golden calf. But we see in these chapters of people offering of their possessions to the Lord in a pure and right expression of worship. This tabernacle gets built because these people are giving generously of what they own. 
Their giving shows a heart oriented towards God, the true God, oriented towards his purposes. Their labor as they faithfully construct the tabernacle, it shows a heart oriented towards God and his purposes. Their detailed obedience, when it says they did everything as God said, shows a heart that is submitted to God's authority. A heart that trusts God's wisdom. A heart that agrees with God's priorities. In these chapters, there's 14 repetitions of the phrase, as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded. There's actually 21 if you include the seven times that it speaks of Moses' efforts. 21 times Moses and the people do as the Lord commanded. That's a lot of emphasis on obedience, isn't it? Friends, this kind of obedience is the mark of a repentant people. That they have turned away from sin. They've turned away from self. And they have turned toward God. And what's the result of that repentance? God is pleased. Moses speaks this blessing on them in chapter 39, 43. And this blessing is more than just a good word from Moses. Although I'm sure that would have been encouraging. Remember that Moses is more than just a leader. Moses is a mediator. He's the one who speaks to them on behalf of God. So when Moses blesses the people, he's communicating to them that God is pleased by their obedience. God is pleased with them. This is the total contrast to when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and he saw the golden calf and he saw the false worship and he throws down the stone tablets and breaks them in a a symbolic act of, of anger and grief because they've broken the covenant. No, this time Moses surveys all that they've done and he blesses them. He says, God is pleased by your obedience. And this divine pleasure is shown in more than just the words of Moses. It's displayed because God draws near to dwell with them. When they worship the golden calf, God said, I must withdraw. If I were to go up among you, even for a moment, I would consume you. But now that they are repentant, now that they are obedient, now that they are surrendered to him and submitted to his will, God draws near and he blesses them with his presence. God's covenant purpose is fulfilled to a repentant people. Friends, in the coming of Jesus Christ, which we sang of this morning, God was opening up a new covenant. It's not like the covenant that was created there at Mount Sinai. It's not based on keeping the law. It depends on faith in Christ. And the blessings of this new covenant includes the forgiveness of sin. It includes the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But listen, the blessings of this covenant are not for those who simply show up to church. The blessings of this covenant are not for those who are simply born into the covenant community like it was in ancient Israel. The blessings of this covenant are reserved for those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you want to be right with God, if you want to enjoy the blessing of his presence, if you want to have your sins forgiven and to have fellowship with God and be reconciled to him, then you must repent of your sin. It's not enough just to believe the right truths about God, but then continue to willfully sin against him, to live a lifestyle that violates his law. Psalm 51.16 says this, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't just want your money or the good things that you do in his name. He wants your heart. We looked at this last week. He wants a broken heart, a contrite heart, a repentant heart that recognizes the sinfulness of sin and mourns over it, turning away from it. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
Proverbs 28, 14 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Listen, the blessings of God's covenant, the riches of his grace are given to a repentant people. None of us can be perfect. We're all sinners, every one of us. And that's why Jesus had to come. That's why he was born as a baby. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because the Son of God became a man, so that he could fulfill the law in our place, and so that he could die for sin in our place. God doesn't require us to be perfect. He offers his Son to provide. But God does require that we repent and that we believe that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we do, if we are a repentant people, if you are a person who genuinely repents of sin, then that will be evident in your life. Just like the children of Israel turned from their sin, the golden calf got ground up and spread into the water and they drank it. And they turned away from that to worship God. If you are a person who's truly repented, You won't be perfect, but there will be evidence in your life that your desire is to forsake sin, not to excuse it or to hold on to it. There will be evidence of your faith as you walk in fresh and new obedience, seeking to honor and please the God that you love. God's covenant purpose is fulfilled to a repentant people. And we see that here in this chapter, that as the people repent, God fulfills his covenant purposes. He comes to dwell among them. Secondly, God's covenant purpose is fulfilled through a faithful leader. It's fulfilled through a faithful leader. Moses' role in the construction of the tabernacle, just like in all of Exodus, is absolutely essential. Moses relayed God's word to them. Chapter 39, verse 32. Only Moses had seen the pattern on the mountain, so only he could inspect and approve their work. And he does in chapter 39, verse 43. And it's Moses in chapter 40 that God tasks with setting up and consecrating the tabernacle. If it wasn't for Moses' involvement, think about it. If it wasn't for Moses, Israel would have never made it out of Egypt. They would have never received the law at Mount Sinai. They would have never survived the rebellion with the golden calf because Moses prayed for them. And they would not have been able to complete the tabernacle. This doesn't mean that Moses gets the glory. No. What it means is that God had provided them an imperfect, but a useful and necessary leader through whom God showed his grace to Israel. He fulfilled his covenant purpose through this faithful leader, through Moses. And as we pointed out again and again throughout our study in Exodus, Moses foreshadows a greater and a better leader who is to come, a better mediator, Jesus Christ, the one through whom God fulfills his covenant purposes for us. All the blessings of salvation, we get those because of Jesus and through Jesus. And it's even better than what Israel got through Moses. Better than freedom from physical slavery, Jesus frees us from our slavery to sin and death. Better than the old covenant at Sinai, Jesus brings us the blessings of a new covenant where the law is not written on stone tablets. It's written on our hearts. A new covenant where sins are forgiven through the shedding of his blood and we receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is what we have in Christ, our mediator. Israel looked to Moses to receive God's revelation. They looked to Moses to lead them. They looked to Moses to represent them to God. We look to Christ and we rejoice in Christ with an expectant hope that God will fulfill all of his promises, all of his purposes for us through his perfect son, Jesus. That's why Hebrews chapter two calls Jesus the founder of our salvation. That's why Hebrews 12 calls Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Peter and Paul both call Jesus the cornerstone. 1 Timothy and Hebrews call him our mediator. 
Hebrews chapter three most clearly says this. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. I want to echo those words from Hebrews 3 to you. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider his perfect leadership. Consider his sufficiency and faithfulness as our mediator. Consider his glory as the founder and finisher of our faith. Consider his perfect life. Consider his perfect sacrifice. Consider his resurrection from the dead. And consider how God fulfills his covenant purposes, his gracious promises for us through Jesus, our faithful leader. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says this, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If it wasn't for Moses, Israel would have never left Egypt. And if it wasn't for Christ, you and I would still be spiritually dead, enslaved to our sins, destined for judgment. But because of Jesus, through faith in Jesus, We have all the blessings of salvation. So God's covenant purpose is fulfilled to a repentant people and through a faithful leader. And then third and finally, God's covenant purpose is fulfilled in keeping with his promises. In keeping with his promises. As Exodus comes to this remarkable conclusion, we need to remember that all of this shows us the faithfulness of God. That he is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who says he's going to do something and then he always carries it out. As we find this people now journeying through the wilderness with God dwelling in their midst, headed for the promised land, we find that God is keeping his promise to Abraham. Hundreds of years before this, 430 years to be exact, God had made a promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation, that he would bring this great nation up out of captivity, that he would bring them into the land of Canaan and that he would bless them and that he would bless all the earth through them. That's happening. Exodus shows us that God is keeping that promise that he made to Abraham. It also shows us God is keeping his promise to Moses. In chapter three, verse 12, God said, I will be with you. And here's the sign, you're going to come back here to this mountain with those people. Those people that right now are slaves in Egypt, you're going to bring them back and you will worship me here on this mountain. It was right at the foot of this mountain at Mount Sinai where the tabernacle is constructed. God's glory fills the tabernacle and the people worship. He's keeping his promise. He's keeping his promise to Israel in chapter 19 where he said that his promise was to make them into a holy nation, a chosen people, a treasured possession for himself. God's doing it. He had told them in chapter, later in chapter 29 and 25 that he intended to dwell among them in this tabernacle, and God's doing it. As Exodus concludes, we see further proof of God's perfect faithfulness, that he always keeps his promises, And he's giving them every reason to trust that he will continue to be with them throughout their journey. And they're going to need that as they wander through the wilderness and as they enter into the promised land and face much opposition. They're going to need to know that God keeps his promises and that he will be with them. 
So as we read the Exodus, as we read this history, this record of God's perfect faithfulness, that should strengthen our confidence that this God will also keep his promises to us. God has given you, Christian, every reason to think that he will keep all of his promises to you. Just look at the perfect record of his faithfulness in Scripture. What we find in the book of Exodus is that nothing is too hard for God. Nothing can keep him from fulfilling his purposes. Not a belligerent king like Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, no, I will not let these people go. And who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Well, God showed him, didn't he? Pharaoh couldn't stop God from keeping his promises. Even a large body of water, the Red Sea, Well, that was no problem for God. He simply parted the water and led his people through in the middle. What about the harsh harsh natural environment of the wilderness? Was that a threat to God's purpose to make them a people and bring them out? Not at all. He fed them with bread from heaven and brought out water from the rock. What about the sinful rebellion of his people's own hearts? They made a golden calf and worshiped it. But not even their sin could keep God from fulfilling his plan and keeping his promises. God always accomplishes his purposes. God always keeps his promises. That should give us great confidence. Consider his promises to us today. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus That is why it is through him that we utter our amen for his glory. We look to Jesus today and find that all of our hopes, all of God's promises are anchored in him. Everything depends on the one who died and rose again. Jesus promises to forgive all who call on his name. You can believe that promise. He always keeps that promise. He has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And he will keep that promise. He promises to raise us up to eternal life. He promises us a resurrection. He will keep that promise. Jesus promises that he's going to prepare a dwelling place for us. How ironic is that? After the people create a dwelling place for God, Jesus says, I'm actually going to make a dwelling place for you. He's making a home for us in heaven. And that's a promise promise that Jesus keeps. Jesus promises to come back. He promises to return and to establish his kingdom, to judge his enemies, and to establish his throne here on the earth. And you better believe he's going to keep that promise. Jesus promises that he will one day make all things new, and that even death and Satan will be destroyed. And he will keep that promise. These are promises that we can count on. The God of the Exodus bringing to completion every one of his promises for us. And he's going to do it through his son, Jesus. So God fulfills his covenant purpose to a repentant people. He does it through a faithful leader. And he does it in keeping with his great and precious promises. Promises fulfilled through Jesus. So we've come to the end of Exodus, and it's been an amazing journey. We've seen the children of Israel go from serving Pharaoh in Egypt to serving God at Mount Sinai, from building structures for a cruel king, making bricks with no straw, to building a dwelling place for a good and gracious God. We've seen them go from slavery to true freedom. We've seen them go from praying, God, where are you? We're suffering here under the oppression of our captors to beholding his glory in their midst. The book opened with a people who were wondering if God had forgotten his promise, forgotten them. But the book concludes with God personally leading them home, taking them to the land of Canaan. God has rescued a people by his glorious power that he might enter into a covenant with him, with them, by his glorious grace, so that they might receive his glorious presence. That's the book of Exodus. But as wonderful as this story is, we've also seen that it's really only a shadow of a greater blessing that we enjoy today. The Exodus is a picture. It's a picture of our own salvation, that we who were born as slaves to sin 
can be set free by the power of God and the gospel. That we enter into a covenant with our God through faith in Christ. We are reconciled to him. He takes us as his servants. He takes us as his children. Adopts us into his family. We become his people. So that we might worship him and live under his good and gracious authority. So that we might experience the marvelous gift of God's indwelling presence. That his spirit dwells in us today. So the book of Exodus shows us more than just history. It tells us something about our God and something about our God's ultimate purpose. And it it lights within us a hope, a hope that continues on and grows stronger on the pages of the New Testament, a hope that there is a day coming when there will be something more than a tabernacle made out of human hands, even something more than the indwelling of his Holy Spirit like we experience today. A hope that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth in which we who have been rescued by his glorious power, we who have been reconciled to God by his glorious grace will personally enter into his glorious presence and we will behold the glory of our God in the face of Christ. This is what God is doing. We can trust him. We can worship him. We can find hope in this God. And if you don't know him today, this is what God's doing in the world. This is what God has been doing throughout history. And he calls you today to come be a part of it. Maybe you're an outsider today. I hope you see what God is doing in his glory and in his grace and that you hear his voice calling you to come and to be, to be part of his people, to receive his mercy and grace. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And become part of this great work that God is doing for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of Exodus and for the majesty and the glory that we see on every page. I pray that this study would be used to strengthen our faith. That we would have a clearer vision of who you really are. That we would have a better understanding of how it is that you work in the world. That we would long to rest in your promises, that we would gladly embrace your law, your divine authority over us as true freedom, and that we would eagerly uh, enjoy and anticipate the blessing of your presence with your people. I pray that you would strengthen our faith, and for those who may still be outside your covenant, those who may still be separated from you because of their sin, I pray that today they would repent, that they would turn from sin and trust in Christ And submit themselves to you, coming to you with empty and open hands to be cleansed, to be blessed, to be given the gift of grace, of life, of fellowship with you. And Lord, I pray that we as a church would be a church that fears you rightly, a church that trusts you supremely, and a church that gladly obeys you, doing everything that you command us. Lord, this is the pattern of discipleship you've given that we're to teach men and women, boys and girls, everything that you have commanded, the commands of Christ and the authority of Christ given to the apostles to see the instructions throughout the New Testament and to see how Christ endorses the Old Testament. So really, the whole Bible is your commandments to us. Pray that we would be faithful to do all that you have commanded out of our joy, out of our humility before you, out of our eagerness to, to belong to you and what you are doing in the world. And Lord, we thank you. We've seen grace on every page of this book as well. I thank you that though we are a weak people, a sinful people, that even our sin cannot stop your gracious purposes from continuing on. Lord, might we respond to your grace and your glory with an attitude of humility and joy and worship so that you would receive the glory that you deserve. Amen.